Welcome to all of you. Uh, go to Revelation chapter 18, and first of all, let me point out in Revelation chapter 14, Revelation chapter 14, then we'll go to Revelation chapter 18. And verse Revelation 14 and verse 6. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, it says, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment is come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and springs of waters. This first message of three angels' message is said to be proclaimed with a loud voice. Do you see that? And so oftentimes this is referred to as the loud cry. Have you heard of that phrase before, the loud cry? In other words, the whole inhab- all of the inhabitants of the earth are to hear the good news of Jesus Christ and the gospel about him. So the Lord, before he comes, is going to have his gospel proclaimed to every soul, Buddhists and Hindus and in far-off tribes and isolated areas, north and south, east and west, in the Pacific Islands, wherever there there's going to be a loud cry of the message of God. Now, this loud cry or loud voice is also spoken of in Revelation chapter 18. And it's this angel in Revelation chapter 18 that joins with the three angels of Revelation 14. And in so doing, we have the loud cry. And of course... The angel of Revelation 18 is associated with the latter rain. That's a reference to the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is going to join his power to this loud cry, proclamation of the gospel throughout all of the world, just as the Holy Spirit uh, was poured out on the day of Pentecost and launched the Christian church. Likewise, The Holy Spirit is going to complete the gospel dispensation just before Jesus comes. And this is what is referred to as the latter rain. Um, The former rain was the early rain of the day of Pentecost, and the latter rain is that which is yet to come upon God's people as they will proclaim the gospel. So here it is in Revelation 18 and verse 1. After these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illuminated or enlightened enlightened with his glory. And he repeats the second angel's message here in verse 2. It says, he cried mightily with a loud voice. So there you have the loud cry, don't you? Saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit, in a cage for every unclean and hated bird, 
So there comes a point where the religions and the churches of the world collapse under the weight of the infiltration of paganism into their midst, and God desires that the true gospel and the true Christ be upheld before all of the world so that each one can plainly see the difference between the true Christ and the false Christ, the true gospel and the false gospel at a time when the religions and the churches of the world have collapsed under the weight of paganism. And this is something that Seventh-day Adventists have read about in the spirit of prophecy and in the scriptures, and they have dreamed about and uh, prayed for. We often hear prayers for the latter rain, don't we, and for the loud cry. So it's absolutely essential for us to be as informed as we possibly can be as to what the latter rain and the loud cry is from both the scriptures and the spirit of prophecy uh, because we want to know what the genuine latter rain is because we can be sure that Satan will try to reduplicate the latter rain with a counterfeit outpouring of the Holy Spirit also. For thousands of years, even from the time of the ancient prophets, God's people, they have... uh, dreamed of this glorious vision of the latter rain and the loud cry. And God began to send the beginnings of it, lo and behold, to this poor, humble people, Seventh-day Adventists, uh, back in the mid-part of the 19th century. And he sent it to an assembled group of General Conference delegates uh, in Minneapolis, Maybe your natural reaction to that is probably, well, how could this message in this little church, wooden church, be this cataclysmic event that everybody who has Bibles can read about? I mean, a mighty angel, a great power, the earth lightened with glory, a strong voice from heaven penetrating every honest heart. This message is to go to every household Uh, who believes in Allah, think of it. The message of the gospel is to go to every Muslim, and so many of them, their hearts are closed to it right now, every Buddhist heart, you know, and every Catholic heart the world over. Someone might be saying, you mean God began to reveal that to his Denominated people, the Seventh-day Adventist Church back in the mid-19th century, you got to be kidding. Why, it may be objected, you know, that was just kind of a little whimper in the world of that day compared with the day that we live in now. Well, that might be true, that observation. Remember, however, that the great long-awaited Messiah who was born was uh, born in a cow shed, wasn't he? Jesus came to this earth as a baby, and he was born in a manger. And so we are warned not to despise the day of small things. There was a keen listener on uh, site at at this meeting. She was a very perceptive observer, and uh, she was there at this humble gathering that I'm referring to, and there she saw something happening that apparently none of her contemporaries recognized. That event was indeed the beginning of a last-day wonder, at least 
uh, Ellen White came to that conclusion. Furthermore, she seems to declare as a positive statement through use of double negative that it was, these are her words, showers from heaven of the latter rain. And her closest contemporaries say they had evidence in Australia that this was her conviction. It's interesting that uh, Ellen White, uh, in, in 1892, went as a missionary to Australia and established the fledgling Adventist movement there and uh, also helped in raising up a college there, Avondale College. And now there are many, many Adventists today in Australia, but all from those small beginnings. But she had conversations with um, fellow ministers there, and G.B. Starr, wrote a letter back to the United States in which he said, Ellen White believes that we're in the beginning of the latter rain right now. And that letter was read at a general conference in 1893. So it makes sense because her book, Early Writings, seems to say that there's no way that the loud cry of Revelation 18 can make its long-awaited world debut unless the latter rain is sent first. So the message is received by God's people. God blesses it with the outpouring of the latter rain, and then his people go out under the power of the Holy Spirit to share the good news all over the world with the, under the power of the latter rain. So the evidence that the 1888 message is Revelation 18 fulfilled is far more than merely Ellen White's subjective evaluation. It's the internal objective evidence in the message itself. Its unique elements of built-in biblical truth demonstrate uh, a comprehensive gospel that can meet the specifications of a world-enlightening message. If Ellen White was wrong in her perception here, her life testimony gets pretty well discredited in toto, for never was she so enthusiastic about anything in her long career than she was about the identification of the 1888 significance. What was the initial rock-bottom foundational idea that permeates 1888? What makes the message so unique in its claim for the attention of Seventh-day Adventists today? Simply put, it's this way, that never... the This truth never crossed the minds of Luther or Calvin or the Wesleys, who were a series of divinely led reformatory movements. Neither did this truth ever come into the mind of Sunday-keeping evangelicals of the 1888 era, or it seems has it yet to penetrate the consciousness of our Sunday-keeping brethren and sisters of today. And uh, maybe we haven't told it in a way that grips their interest. But the, the 1888 understanding of the gospel is justification by faith that is parallel to and commensurate with the cleansing of the sanctuary. And that's our unique gospel understanding, isn't it? The, san- the cleansing of the sanctuary, the ministry of our great high priest, in the second most holy apartment, and uh, in the context of 1888, it is the cosmic day of atonement. We've been living in the day of atonement, 
ever since 1844. We have, according to Bible prophecy. Let's think about this for a moment. The problem in 1888 was that although that cosmic day of atonement had begun in 1844, 44 years earlier, according to Daniel 8.14, our people and had not embraced the idea of following Christ by faith into his closing work. The issue was clear-cut. What brought the Seventh-day Adventist Church into being was this idea of the cleansing of the sanctuary, which explained the mystery of the great disappointment uh, on 18, uh, of 1844. At the conclusion of the 2,300-year prophecy, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. Christ left the first apartment. He closed its door, figuratively speaking, and he opened a new door. Uh, and it's mentioned there in Revelation 13, an open door, a new phase of his sanctuary ministry. He began his final work of atonement in the second or the most holy apartment. His sacrifice on the cross had been ample and complete, but now Jesus wants to lead his people into a complete heart reconciliation with himself. The Holy Spirit must speak creatively to a corporate body of the church. Be ye reconciled to God. So that every buried root of alienation would be cleansed from the hearts of his people. That would be the atonement, wouldn't it, in the strictest sense of the word. So from 1844 onward, Christ's main work was no longer to prepare believing people to die and to go into the grave in order to await the first resurrection. It is a wonderful preparation if one must die to believe in Jesus Christ as they go into the grave and await the first resurrection. But now, in this great day of atonement, Jesus desires to prepare a people, a body, for ready for translation without tasting death. Amen? And so this requires uh, their learning a new song, a new song, a new and deeper appreciation of the gospel where their hearts that have been alienated are now brought into oneness with him. And so it, it just about takes a person's breath away today. You know, this is exactly what this phrase means, the blessed hope. When our early pioneers spoke of the blessed hope, it was not that they would prepare to die and come up in the first resurrection, but the blessed hope for them was uh, to be alive when Jesus comes. Um, that's what it meant to them. And it sustained them as believers that they had gone through the great disappointment of 1844. It really fired the enthusiasm of the little flock that would not give up their faith that the Holy Spirit was in their movement. By the way, the Seventh-day Adventist movement is, was launched as a charismatic movement. You're aware of that, aren't you? It's a Holy Spirit movement. It's the true Holy Spirit movement, which Satan's been trying to counterfeit ever since. <laughs> and uh, so when you are studying about the fruit of the Spirit, uh, remember this, that uh, the true Holy Spirit comes from where, class? It comes from Jesus, right? 
It's the Spirit of Christ. And where is Jesus now? He's in the most holy place. So in order to, uh, for us to enjoy the benefits of the Holy Spirit's fruit, we must by faith follow Jesus into the most holy. Then we have the true love, joy, and peace that Ellen White talked about there in early writings, page 55. Uh, Seventh-day Adventists need to be intelligent regarding where Jesus is in terms of his ministry. The early Seventh-day Adventists expected to see Jesus come within their lifetime. They would have been so privileged, many at least, if the leading brethren had not intercepted the Lord's initial gift of the latter rain. Disturbing as this may be, large numbers of thoughtful and loyal Seventh-day Adventists worldwide are constrained by conscience to acknowledge this reality. Well, in the early years after 1844, the little group of Advent believers, they gladly accepted every ray of light that heaven sent their way. As we've mentioned, they accepted the sanctuary truth uh, in Daniel 8.14. Under 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. What did the Millerites believe the sanctuary was initially? They thought that was the earth, right? And, uh, of course, on that misunderstanding came the great disappointment when Jesus didn't come in 1844. But as they went back to their scriptures and they prayed more earnestly, the Lord revealed to them his sanctuary in heaven. And they came to the understanding that Jesus had now shifted in terms of a second phase of ministering a heart atonement from his most holy place. And his followers were to, by faith, join him um, in being reconciled to God. So the early Adventist believers, they gladly accepted the understanding of the sanctuary truth. Amen. Would that all of God's people today would embrace it and understand it intelligently. And then came along the seventh-day Sabbath truth after that. And uh, that was brought to the attention of Joseph Bates by a little Seventh-day Baptist woman. And uh, when Joseph Bates brought this to the early pioneers, they studied it out from the Bible. Keep in mind that they'd been worshiping on Sunday. And when they heard about the Bible Sabbath, they saw the love of God in it, and they embraced that too. Amen. And then um, they thought that Sabbath was to be observed like Sunday was to be observed, from midnight to midnight, you know, like the, the secular day is constructed. But then they began to study the Bible, and they realized that according to the Bible, the day begins when? at sundown on Friday, and then it ends on sundown on Saturday, doesn't it? So they received that truth regarding the beginning and the ending of the Sabbath. And then the Lord revealed to them the basics regarding health reform and keeping the body temple uh, a place that is fit where God can dwell. And they embraced that wonderful truth, which was a day of atonement practically practical godliness. Then another truth came along, the nature of man. You see, we take all of these things for granted, but these were great changes for them, which they willingly received into their hearts. And the nature of man, you know, 
all of our early pioneers probably had some notions of the immortality of the soul, maybe not all of them, but when the Lord brought to them the truth about the mortality of man, uh, they received that truth also. And then there were other matters that the Lord brought to their attention regarding reform of dress and modesty of living and appropriate self-denial. The point of this is that each new truth that the Lord revealed to the people, um, because they were so in love with him, they just received it, you see, and faith worked by love. They were, so that's the other thing that I'd like to impress upon you, that Seventh-day Adventists were a charismatic movement. By that I mean that it was uh, empowered and launched by the Holy Spirit. And secondly, it was in God's intent to be a restoration of his agape love. And that love always is obedient to the truth. And that is what was happening as God was revealing truth to them. They embraced it. And then by 1856, a uh, finite angel whose knowledge, incidentally, was not omniscient, was happy with the obvious progress of developing faith in the hearts of these people. And he predicted with angelic but finite judgment that some believers then living would be translated without seeing death at the coming of Jesus. And the promise of the Lord descending there in 1 John 4.16 is from from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, then the dead in Christ shall rise first. And Paul goes on to say, And we which are alive and remain shall be caught up with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. We which are alive and remain. That's the translation part of not seeing death before Jesus comes. And so the angel said, there's some believers here in 1856 that are going to have that privilege of seeing Jesus come uh, without entering the grave. Now, if only this people will accept the gift of the beginning of the latter reign, the angel's prophecy will be fulfilled. Unfortunately, the leading brethren did not, and they shut it away from the people. In 1890, nearly two years after the beginning of the most precious message, Ellen White said that there was a problem, and speaking in the capacity of the testimony of Jesus as the spirit of prophecy, she wrote a series of appeals to the review, pleading with our people and especially um, our leaders to realize what period of world history they were living in. And she declared that the message of Jones and Wagner was the Holy Spirit's practical application of Christ's most holy apartment ministry. So here's her words from 1890 on the front page of the review as she's pleading with our people to follow Jesus into the most holy. January 21, she wrote, We are in the Day of Atonement. And we are to work in harmony with Christ's work of cleansing the sanctuary from the sins of the people. Let no man who desires to be found with the wedding garment on resist our Lord in his office work. Then next week again, she says, Christ is in the heavenly sanctuary, and he is there to make an atonement for the people. He is cleansing the sanctuary from the sins of the people. What is our work? 
It is our work to be in harmony with the work of Christ. By faith, we are to work with him, to be in union with him. A people is to be prepared for the great day of God. Next week again, the mediatorial work of Christ, the grand and holy mysteries of redemption are not studied or comprehended by the people who claim to have light in advance of every other people on the face of the earth. And then on February 11, she wrote, Christ is cleansing the temple in heaven from the sins of the people, and we must work in harmony with him upon the earth, cleansing the soul temple from its moral defilement. She's very burdened with the following Jesus into the Most Holy. February 25, she says, The people have not entered into the holy place where Jesus has gone to make an atonement for his children, but there is spiritual drought in the churches. And then the following week on March 4, she said, Light is flashing from the throne of God, and what is this for? It is that a people may be prepared to stand in the day of God. And then finally, next, the next week, she says what's on her heart. We've been hearing his voice more distinctly in the message that has been going for the last two years. We have only just begun to get a little glimmering of what faith is. And then, March 18, you've been having light from heaven for the past year and a half that the Lord would have you bring into your character and weave into your experience. If our brethren were all laborers together with God, they would not doubt, but that the message he has sent us during these last two years is from heaven, special light for the people. Well, what does this all mean? How is this um, 1888 idea of justification by faith, how is that related uh, to a special day of atonement ministry? of Christ as high priest, which began only after 1844. Uh, In what way does the 1888 idea of justification by faith go beyond that of the 16th century reformers and our Sunday-keeping evangelicals? Or does it go beyond? Let me just uh, address these questions then. Number one, The 1888 idea lifted up the cross of Christ higher than it had been displayed since Pentecost. It was a partial fulfillment of a later prophecy that Ellen White made where she says, Great truths that have lain unheeded and unseen since the day of Pentecost are to shine from God's word in their native purity. Now, that, that's really astounding if you think it through. Um, on the day of Pentecost, Peter, what really gripped the hearts of the Jews was when Peter reached the place of lifting up the cross and where he said, and you were the ones that murdered him. And they were convicted in their hearts, and they said, what must we do? And Peter said, repent and be baptized, didn't he? So the message on the day of Pentecost was an uplifting of the cross which convicted sinners by the love of Christ's sacrificial death. Likewise, the 
1888 idea of the cross was to lift it even higher than on the day of Pentecost. And hence, uh, an understanding that when Jesus died on the cross, the physical agonies, agonies that he went through, which were a multitude of them, but they paled in significance to the mental agony that Jesus experienced when he died for us on the cross. He literally died the equivalent of the second death, and he, as the Son of God, died because in his mind he committed himself to be eternally separated from his Father. It was a deeper appreciation of Jesus' death upon the cross, which reaches hearts that are hard and melts them with God's love. So that's number one. Number two, the 1888 message of justification by faith proclaimed that Christ had successfully accomplished the mission that the Father had sent him to do. He had actually redeemed the world and saved the world and won for all men an adoption into the family of his Father and thus granted to them all a legal justification. By virtue of the cross, the world itself now stood in a different relationship to God. Christ had now become the last or second Adam. He had reversed the legal condemnation that had come on the world because of the first Adam's sin. Now, legal uh, justification, where, where Jesus' death for all of humanity gives all justification of life, it does not mean universal justification. In other words, it doesn't mean universal salvation. But it does mean that uh, justification of life is effective for everyone. Effective in this way. First of all, we all live and breathe, don't we? And we're thankful for that. (laughs) And... uh, If Jesus had not died on the cross, the wages of sin would have taken over and we would all be dead immediately. So, to me, justification of life is very effective. I've lived here for 60 years because of it. How many years have you lived here because of it? (laughs) Furthermore, Jesus is so... This thought came to me at communion um, as we were taking the bread and the cup... And that is, Jesus intimately linked his death with bread and drink, didn't he? And that is, I associate that with Ellen White's comment in Desire of Ages, that every morsel of food and every cup that we drink comes by virtue of the cross. In other words, justification of life is effective because Jesus sustains us. You know, he gives us these things to sustain our life. Another thing is that for the most part, Um, we enjoy the love of family, uh, a a spouse perhaps, or a family. And if we don't have a spouse or a family, we enjoy the wonderful blessings of church fellowship, don't we? And so all of this is made effective for us because of the cross of Christ and justification of life. And then you think about everyone that's unchurched, they get so many of the blessings that we get too because God allows his son and his reign to come upon them just as he does upon us. The only difference is 
that they don't enjoy the wonderful fellowship and union with Christ as we have and fellowship with one another. That's experiencing justification by faith. So the point that I'm trying to make here is that justification of life is effective. It's not just an offer that doesn't work until you do something first. It's doing something for you before you ever believe it. (laughs) And um, that's a core principle of the 1888 message. In other words, now the father, because of Christ's uh, sacrifice, he can make his son to rise on the evil and on the good. He can send rain on the just and on the unjust, as Jesus said there in Matthew 5:45. God's now free to treat everyone as though he had not sinned. And now the truth of the Lord's Supper can be made heartfelt sense. Christ himself is the bread of God, which giveth life unto the world. Jesus said, the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Except ye eat the flesh of the Son of God and drink his blood, ye have no life in you, is true of all men, believers and unbelievers alike. But this truth that is uh, articulated in the 1888 message does not mean that everyone will go to heaven. It isn't the heresy of universalism. By his sacrifice, Christ has given to every one of us the freedom to resist and to reject what he's done for us. So often many do. And the lost ask for their own, uh, the lost do this, of course, at their own final destruction. But those who are saved are those who gladly receive the gift. And once Seventh-day Adventists were to learn to proclaim this astounding truth, of justification of life, we sometimes refer to it as objective gospel in its fullness, what Christ has done for the human race, then honest hearts would experience what the Bible calls justification by faith. And that's the subjective gospel. I'd like for you to take your Bibles and look at Romans chapter 3 and verses 23 with me just so that you and see this Bible principle here, Romans chapter 3, and verse 23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's categorically everyone, isn't it? All have sinned, fall short of the character of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So that's the objective justification there. Do you see it? For the all who have sinned are being justified freely, it says. So the all who have sinned are the ones being justified freely by his grace. That's justification of life. Now, in verse 25 is the reception of, of that gift. Um, it says, Whom God set forth as a propitiation of his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. So God says, Whom God set forth as a propitiation. By his blood, that's the cross, through faith. So now faith enters uh, in this verse. 
And faith is given to us to exercise, to choose to exercise, isn't it? So faith sees something. What does it see? It sees the propitiation by his blood. It sees the cross, in other words, doesn't it? And by the way, um, many people are driven away from Christianity because of a, a, a false understanding of the propitiation. You know what I'm talking about? So often, you know, the pagan notion of propitiation is that God is so angry with sinners that uh, he needs an offering to calm him down, to appease his wrath, because he's mad, he's wrathful against sinners. And so, since it would defeat his purpose of saving sinners if he just took his wrath out on them, then Jesus takes the hit for us. And... uh, appeases his wrath. And that's the pagan notion of the atonement. The pagans had this idea that you offer one of your children on an altar in order to appease the wrath of the gods. No, who needs the atonement? Who needs the propitiation? It's the ones who are the enemies of God, right? It's the sinners who need the propitiation. And so how is that accomplished? It's accomplished by his blood. That's the cross. And so faith sees something in the cross. It appreciates the cost that Jesus paid. And the heart that has formerly been hard and alienated from God is now propitiated. It's reconciled to God. The the sacrifice of the propitiation reconciles the alienated heart to God and experiences the atonement. Because the word faith is here. It has to do with an experience, the subjective side of it. So verses 23 and 24 are the objective gospel, and verse 25 here is the subjective. And uh, we get this phrase, justification of life, from Romans chapter 8. Or pardon me, Romans chapter 5 and verse 18. So just so that you can have this for your reference. In Romans chapter 5 and verse 18, it says, Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. You obviously know who that one man was, right? Adam. Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in, there you have that phrase, justification of life. So that's the objective the objective, the gift that we were talking about earlier. Well, when you can see the cross and begin to appreciate what it costs there, and when you can begin to see that you've actually been living now for 40 or 50 or 60 years as a free gift from God because of the cross, that's a whole lot of love, isn't it, from above? That should reach the heart, shouldn't it? And uh, when that happens, then you have the atonement. Because a heart that falls in love with God like that, there's no end of what it'll do for God. See? Faith works by love. So (laughs) these are the key components of the 1888 message here. 
hearts and lives are changed forever as a result. By proclaiming what Christ accomplished on his cross, the hearts won. So salvation is not merely an offer made to the world. It's the gift that he has given to the world. John 12, 32 and 33 comes into its own. John 12, 32 and 33. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. This he said, signifying what death he should die. We can well imagine that that verse will come into its own when the loud cry in the latter rain is proclaimed throughout all of the world. The cross needs to be lifted higher and higher and higher for everybody to see it. Muslims and Hindus and Buddhists, so that the love of God has an opportunity to reach every sin-hardened heart. The Lord has given this unworthy people a unique grasp of the significance of Christ's cross, which is yet to lighten the earth with glory. Christ's death proves God's great love, Ellen White says, for man. It is our pledge of salvation. To remove the cross, she says, from the Christian would be like blotting the sun from the sky. The cross brings us near to God, reconciling us to him. With the relenting compassion of a father's love, Jehovah looks upon the suffering that his son endured in order to save the race from eternal death and accepts us in the beloved. Focus sharply the picture of that uplifted cross and multitudes will respond. By revealing the extent of Christ's accomplishment on the cross, people are brought to see themselves as Esau. You remember Esau? He had a unique privilege as being the firstborn. Um, He was a twin, but he came out first, so he was the firstborn. As a consequence, he was given a birthright, which... uh, What came with that was that he was going to be the spiritual leader of the family, of the clan, and also it had a lot of material blessings that came with it. Uh, So it was not just offered to Esau, it was actually given to him. But what did he do with it? He, He didn't value it very highly, did he? And he sold it for a pot of lentils soup. So it wasn't just offered to Esau, it was given to him, but he did not appreciate it, and consequently he, he hindered it and uh, frustrated it. Yes, uh, I suppose in a sense one can say that justification of life is an offer, but it is far more than merely an offer because it is given to us in Christ. In startling reality, the sinner sees that Christ has personally individually died his second death. It's far more than a stirring up of our emotions. And now hearts are confronted with a meaningful alternative, either despise and sell what has, was placed in their hands like Esau did, or treasure the gift by the same faith that Abraham exercised. As one example, the self-sacrifice needed to accept the Sabbath truth then becomes a joy. The Holy Spirit will do a quick work in all of the world. Um, I believe very firmly that 
when the cross is lifted up in the final message of enlightening the whole world, that the Sabbath truth will not be a difficulty for people who embrace the cross of Christ. And that will be what it means to proclaim the Sabbath more fully. Then number six, genuine justification by faith in this day of atonement is infinitely more than a legal declaration as is commonly supposed. It accomplishes within itself all the heart-changing miracles that we assign to sanctification. Um, Evangelicals would like to separate and make a distinction between justification by faith and sanctification because they want to make justification by faith all legal and not not an experience of atonement, a heart reconciled to God. Furthermore, they don't believe that sanctification can perfect a character that will stand when Jesus comes so that a life can be translated. And consequently, uh, it gives an excuse for lawlessness and, and uh, legalism. Just Sanctification is ongoing justification by faith. Let me put it this way. Genuine conversion takes place. A person is born again. They're launched into being a Christian by the agape love of God, by seeing the cross, by appreciating the gift of justification of life. That's what launches us into Christianity, and dear friends, that's what sustains us day by day until the very end. It's got to be the cross and a deepening appreciation of justification by faith And that's what it means to be sanctified. And, by the way, that idea of justification by faith, then, is commensurate with our understanding of our unique truth regarding the cleansing of the sanctuary. Justification comes into its own as a union with the cleansing of the heavenly sanctuary. That's the unique idea of the 1888 message. In summarizing the 1888 message of justification by faith, Ellen White declared that it makes the believer, this is in testimonies to ministers, I think it's page 91 and 92, she says, Ellen White says, it makes the believer obedient to all of the commandments of God, which of course includes the fourth, the Sabbath commandment. And therein is revealed the truth that prepares a people for translation. It's a more mature presentation of the grace of God that effectively teaches the joy of self-denial. So this is why we say frequently that uh, we have no business as Seventh-day Adventists embracing evangelical gospel, evangelical ideas of righteousness by faith, because God has revealed to us from the Bible and the spirit of prophecy something so much better, so much better. The Sabbath proclaimed more fully as what early writing says must come with a loud cry. No one can proclaim justification by faith in its end-time setting who does not render heartfelt obedience to all the commandments of God. There can be no unconscious subservience to the man of sin who created the spurious Sunday Sabbath where justification by faith is clearly understood in the light of the cleansing of the sanctuary. 
There is in justification by faith today the heart-changing power that affects both the blotting out of sin and the final atonement. It is truth, which is the power of God unto salvation. When proclaimed and received by the corporate body of God's people, it will make possible the heavenly announcement, let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. Uh, I think that's Revelation 19, verse 6. All right, well, we have a moment or two for comments, and someone always says, I'll have a question, you know. So, <laughs> you have any questions or comments? Mark? Whatever you understood it to mean. <laughs> okay. So, what do the evangelicals, I mean, the cleansing of the sanctuary is all I've understood. So, what do the evangelical Christians understand that to mean? Uh, well, they believe that when Jesus ascended to be take up his high priestly duties, is this getting at your question? Yeah. That he went right into the most holy place. that there were not two phases to it. Okay, any, any other observations or comments? All right, well, some of you are looking at me kind of drowsy-eyed, so maybe we'll have our benediction then. Mark, would you have benediction for us? Okay. True. Yeah.